at the end of the season, I remember winning the championship and everybody's, you know, going nuts. And, I, and I'm kind of standing back and it doesn't feel as good. And that's crazy to say. This is, this is the height of my professional career. I'm 34 years old. Uh, we've won a million games. We're going to the NCAA tournament. People are talking about me getting new jobs, bigger jobs, doing this, doing that. You're on ESPN Sports Center. You're on, you know, CBS. You're, you're, you're doing national media spots. And it didn't feel right. This is the L3 Leadership Podcast, episode number 140. What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast. My name is Doug Smith, and I am the founder of L3 Leadership. We're a leadership development company devoted to helping you become the best leader that you can be. In this episode, you're going to get to hear Andy Toll, who is the head coach of Robert Morris University's men's basketball team, share his leadership journey and some of the lessons that he's learned along the way. But before we jump into Andy's talk, uh, just a few things. One, if you're new to this podcast, this podcast is intended to help you grow your leadership skills, and we're committed to bring you three or four new episodes every single month. One will always be from our leadership breakfast that we host in our city. One will be an interview that I do with a high-level leader. And then once a month, you'll get a personal leadership lesson by me. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I'd really appreciate if you would jump on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It really does make a difference. I want to thank our sponsor, Henny Jewelers. Henny Jewelers are a family-owned jeweler in the city of Pittsburgh, owned by my friend and mentor, John Henny. My wife, Laura, and I got our engagement and wedding rings through Henny Jewelers and had an incredible experience. What we love about them is they not only have great jewelry, but they also invest in people. John gave Laura and I a book to help us prepare for our marriage, and he's been investing in us as a couple and me as a leader and a husband and a father ever since, and I'm so appreciative of that. So if you're in need of a good jeweler, check out hennyjewelers.com. I want to thank our other sponsor, Alex Tulandon with Keller Williams Realty. Alex is a full-time realtor with Keller Williams Realty, whose team is committed to providing clients with high-effective, premier real estate experiences throughout the greater Pittsburgh region. Alex is a member and supporter of L3 Leadership, and he'd love the opportunity to connect with you. If you're looking in the market for a house, you can find out more at pittsburghpropertyshowcase.com. Now it's time to dive into our content. This month, we had the honor and privilege of having Coach Andy Toll, the head coach of Robert Morris University's men's basketball team, come and share his best leadership content with us. And I actually interviewed Andy in episode number 114 of the L3 Leadership Podcast. So if you enjoy his talk, you can go back and listen to our one-on-one conversation in episode 114. Um, but I knew after I interviewed him that I immediately wanted him to speak at a uh, breakfast, and he knocked it out of the park. You're going to love this talk. A little bit about Andy, so you can have some context for who he is. He attended and played at Penn, taking his team to two NCAA tournament appearances. He was the youngest head coach in Division I sports at 29 years old, and he's taken Robert Morris to the NCAA tournament several times. His team actually beat Kentucky in round one of the NIT tournament a few years. He also got to play against Duke and Coach K in the NCAA tournament, and you'll get to hear the rest of his journey in his talk. Um, But what I loved about this personally was Andy was extremely vulnerable and honest about the realities of leadership. Uh, I played it a little bit in the intro, but he actually shares a story about what it was like the night they were at the peak of their success. And yet he felt, he just felt like something wasn't right. And I'll let him finish that story. And then he finishes his talk by sharing the top five leadership lessons he's learned. And then if you enjoy the talk again, in episode number 141, you can listen to our Q&A session with Andy, which followed up his talk at the breakfast. With that being said, enjoy Andy's talk and I'll be back at the end with a few announcements. Can everybody hear me well enough? And it's always funny as I watch the room start to fill up, uh, just like with our team or any any, uh, group that I'm in, the back always fills up first. 
and then everybody works their way to the front. Uh, I'm not going to call anybody out. I'm not going to yell at anybody today, I don't think, so uh, feel safe. Um, Doug, thanks for having me here, first and foremost. Um, it's always great, and, and one of the most exciting things about the opportunity to come and speak to you guys today is the fact that for the last week or so, I've really been sitting down, and it, and it coincides with a great time for me personally because it's the, it was the end of our season. So it was a great timing where our season finished, and then I was really able to sit down and start to examine you know, my leadership and uh, if I'm doing it well or if I'm not doing it well and some of the things, yeah, thank you, uh, doing some of the things and taking some time to really evaluate myself as a coach and as a leader because it's... Uh, it's a strenuous, strenuous thing. Uh, I also want to thank Russell and Bab for having us here this morning. You know, great uh, venue to be able to sit and to talk. And I want to make this as informal as I possibly can. So if there's anything during the course of my uh, talk here that you guys want to jump in with or, or a question about or don't understand, please feel free. Um, by a show of hands, how many people here have a connection to Robert Morris University? Okay, not bad. Good. And, and hopefully there'll be some more hands by the end. Um, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of background on myself. I'm, I'm, I've been in Pittsburgh now for 10 years, uh, which I think makes me half a yinzer. But um, I, uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Okay, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my wife's also from New Jersey. I have two young sons, a four-year-old son and a two-year-old son. My two-year-old was up at 5.15 this morning, so this is a little more like a lunch than a breakfast. But um, incredibly fortunate and incredibly lucky to, to have the position that I have. And I started playing the game of basketball when I was four years old, and it became my passion. It was what I did 24-7. It's what I thought about. Uh, it's what I, you know, in class, what I was doodling on my notebook. I was drawing basketballs, and I was doing everything I could to think about the game and try and become the best player I could be. Um, eventually, I, I got a Division I scholarship to Elon College, which is down in North Carolina. I played there for two years, and then I transferred to the University of Pennsylvania in Philly. And my junior and senior year, I was fortunate enough to be a part of March Madness as a player, which is probably the highlight of my playing career. And I had a good playing career, and after I was done playing, I had the opportunity to go play overseas. Uh, I had the opportunity to go play in Turkey, uh, in the first division in Turkey, and I decided to turn it down because at that point in time, I had already begun getting involved with some personal workouts, with some training, with some coaching. I felt like coaching would be my path that I would want to go down, and as great an experience as it would be to go and play you know, overseas and extend my playing career, I felt like I was you know, starting to get in a little bit deeper from a coaching perspective, and I wanted to kind of see where that would take me. I had a number of friends who had gone to play overseas and had great experiences, but when they came back, it was almost like they were restarting their careers, you know, and maybe they were 25, 26, 27, and trying to get into the workforce or the coaching world or whatever it would be, and they were you know, kind of in a different place. So I got into coaching. I was 0 for 5 in my first five coaching interviews. Uh, which was uh, uh, defeating, to say the least. Uh, and, and actually, I should say, as, uh, from a leadership perspective, as a player, I was always my team's captain. I was always the team's spokesman. I was always the guy who, hey, you got to go talk to coach, and you got to tell him that, you know, we hate practicing at 6 o'clock in the morning. Or you got to, you know, that, that was me. And I, and I never really feared that. I never really... Um, even though I got chewed out a couple times because of it, you know, I always thought that that was an important position for me to have within a team. Maybe if I wasn't the best player or the best athlete, if I could be someone who could help rally some people, if I could be someone who could help kind of um, keep people on the right track, my value would increase as a player. 
And I was always a guy who was very much uh, worried about the team, and I always wanted to win. So those things never bothered me. If, if, if I didn't shoot as much, but we were able to win, that, made, that satisfied me. So I was okay with whatever role I had in order to help our team get where they needed to get. Um, a good example of that, when I transferred to Penn, I was, um, you have to sit out. I don't know if you guys under, know the NCAA transfer rules, but I had to sit a year out. And it was really a valuable year for me because even though I was part of the team, I couldn't play in games and I couldn't travel. So I would practice every day. They would go away for a game or they would have a game day, and I would kind of be just one step removed from the game day preparation. But I really could sit back and observe about some of the things that our team needed. And it was a really great year of growth for me as a player and I think has helped me in my coaching world because I could really sit back and observe the team dynamic. Okay, I could really see uh, from a, from a – I had an inside seat but an outsider's view on what was happening within the team. And the team that year um, was talented but not successful. 12 and 19, the year that I sat out. The following year, we added a couple pieces. I was able to play. Some guys grew up. We went 25 and 7, right? So we had a dramatic change, and I think some of it was just based on the approach that hopefully I helped bring to our practice setting every day, to our locker room every day, um, and allowed our team to really flourish, go to the NCAA tournament, and have a great two-year run. So that was, that's, that's my basketball side, all right? That's, my, that's the basketball side. And then I, I transitioned into coaching, and like I said, my first um, – my first five interviews, I did not get, a, get an opportunity to get a job. One of them was a volunteer job. So that's when you know you're low, when you, when you don't even get a volunteer job. So I was fortunate enough to get my first opportunity to be an assistant coach at Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania, and I was there for one year. And then after that year, I came out here uh, to Robert Morris University. Uh, a friend of mine named Mike Rice was hired to be the head coach here. I spent three years as an assistant with him, we had a great three-year run, an NIT trip, and two NCAA tournaments. He moved on to Rutgers University, and I got promoted at 29, as Doug said. And I was on, in the, in, the, in the world of college basketball, I was literally on Easy Street. Assistant coach for four years, become a head coach at 29, youngest Division I head coach in the country. I'm walking through different recruiting events my first year as a head coach, my first summer as a head coach, and I can see the stairs I can see the, the eye rolls. I can see everybody else that's out there that maybe have been doing this for 15 or 20 years looking for their opportunity to run their own program look at me and say, this guy's got no shot. Or how did this guy get his opportunity? Or he'll be fired in three years. You could feel all of that at 29 as you're, as you're walking from court to court. Um, and obviously, college basketball is an con- incredibly competitive environment. There's 351 schools that play Division I basketball, so there's only 351 head coaches. There's three full-time assistants at all those places. So there's you know, 2,000 Division I coaches that are roaming around the country, and there's 20,000 people that believe they can do it better than you, and there's 20,000 people that are trying to get into your job. All right? So it's an, an incredibly competitive, competitive uh, incredibly cutthroat environment. And now I'm charged to lead this team at 29. We have one senior, we have one junior, everybody else is a freshman and sophomore. And I always had great confidence and faith in my ability to lead, to motivate, to do all those kind of things. And everything was great. My first five years, we won 110 games. We won two regular season championships and went to the NCAA tournament. My fifth year, we went to the NCAA tournament. We won a first-round game, and then we lost to Duke in the second round, who went on to be the eventual national champion. And some of my biggest leadership struggles actually started 
with that NCAA tournament team. And the reason why is because the group that I inherited as a coach and the group that I started to mold and the guys that I started to add in, I added some of the wrong pieces into the group. In the, in, in the quest for a championship, okay, um, three, of my, three of my first four years, we went to our conference championship game. We lost all three. We made some moves from a personnel standpoint. We added some pieces into our locker room that started to erode the fabric of the culture that we had built. And this was a really hard thing for me because I could see it, right? I could see it. It started in the summertime. And you could see these talented pieces, but you could, not, you could see them not coming together. And all the while, we have high expectation for our team. Other people see the talented pieces, but they don't always see what's the inside, what's in that locker room, what's going on in the day-to-day, how difficult it is to try and get guys to work at the level they need to work at in order to be successful. And so we sat as a staff. I I remember sitting with my staff in the fall of uh, 2014, I guess, because it was the 2014-15 season that we went to the NCAA tournament, and saying, I feel like we're getting away from the process that we have done in order to become successful in the previous four years with me as the head coach, three years as an assistant. And you could start to see it slipping, and you could start to see some of the pull happening, but we were winning. And it was really hard. And at the end of the season, I remember winning the championship and everybody's you know, going nuts. And, I, and I'm kind of standing back. And it doesn't feel as good. And that's crazy to say. This is, this is the height of my professional career. I'm 34 years old. Uh, we've won a million games. We're going to the NCAA tournament. People are talking about me getting new jobs, bigger jobs, doing this, doing that. You're on ESPN Sports Center. You're on, you know, CBS. You're 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 doing national media spots, and it didn't feel right. And I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but the way it feels is kind of important, you know. And you could just see the team wasn't as connected. And this is the best example of it. So we win the championship. We now. I'm, I'm getting run all over the place, doing different media obligations, talking here, talking there. And I'm walking out of the building that our game was at, and our hotel was two blocks away, so you could walk right to the hotel. So we told the guys, hey, when we win the game, we're going to, you know, it's going to be crazy. I told the assistants, make sure everybody gets back to the hotel. We'll meet when we get to the hotel. I'm walking out of the building to go to back to the hotel, all right? My phone is absolutely exploding. I think I have like 410 text messages. You know, the whole thing is going nuts. And one of our players calls. Hey, where are you at? I said, I'm on my way back to the hotel. He said, is it cool if we go home? Because we have a lot of, this game was in New York City. We have a lot of guys from the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. I said, what? He said, yeah, it says tomorrow we don't have anything on the schedule for practice. Is it okay if we go home? I said, we just won a championship. Why would you not want to be with your teammates in the hotel right now celebrating? This is a lifelong memory that you just created in a hard-fought game, in a crazy environment, on the road. We win the game, and you're trying to go home. He said, well, Dave went home. I said, what? So I immediately, I got to call you back. Boom. Call Dave. Where are you at? Oh, I'm on my way back to Philly. You're going where? This is a senior. Senior. You're where? Oh, yeah, my brother uh, said we're going back to Philly. I said, why would you ever leave? 
Oh, well, it says we don't practice tomorrow. All the guys are trying to go. And so right there, it was like the greatest professional moment of your life just gets completely exploded by the fact that your guys don't get it. Like they, don't, they, they have no concept of what they just accomplished. They have no concept of the, the, the experience of doing it together. And that's how that year went. Five, six, seven guys playing for themselves maybe or playing for the opportunity to go to the NCAA tournament but not doing it as a unit, not doing it together. Uh, and so that really shook me. Right? It really shook me because I went back to my hotel and I, I didn't sleep that night. I was trying to get back to all the text messages and you're just getting so much uh, praise, right? Like you, you did all this great stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, what a fraud I am, right? And I, and I'm, and I, and I talk to our team all the time. It's one of my biggest pet peeves in the world is people that are fraudulent, right? And we go through the recruiting process as coaches and we talk to our guys all the time about, Hey, um, you know, do you love to play the game? Are you passionate? You know, tell me about your experience as a teammate. And they give you all the answers. Everybody's the best on their interview. And then all of a sudden they come on campus and they're faced with adversity and it drives me insane because they're frauds. And so I'm sitting here texting back, oh, thanks so much. I can't wait to go to the NCAA tournament. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And I'm feeling inside like a fraud. And so we ended up finishing out the year and, and, um, and, and even after we won, I knew what our next season would be. And so after a five-year run of three championships, uh, two NITs, beating St. John's, beating Kentucky in the NIT, going to the NCAA tournament, um, I knew our next year would be poor because I knew that our culture had deteriorated, and I knew I was responsible for it. And so we came back the following year after going to the NCAA tournament, and we won 10 games. We won 10 games. And some of the guys that were on that NCAA tournament team graduated. A majority of them came back. And my spring and summer with those guys was miserable. Because now, all the stuff that I had preached as a coach to them for some of them for two years, some of them for one year, some of them for three years, didn't matter. Because they got the end result that they were looking for, a championship, an NCAA tournament trip, without half the BS that I was yelling at them about every day, right? And we had removed ourselves from the process we had always taken to become a good team. And so getting them to lift weights, getting them to go to practice, getting them to do things at the proper speed was almost impossible because now they looked at the coaching staff like, yeah, you guys are okay, but we got this figured out. And we won 10 games the next year, 10 and 22. And so after that, 2015-16 season, what we did was we went all the way back. We we sat down as a staff. We took about three or four days. Uh, We made some changes to our roster. Uh, We tried to identify guys who were talented enough to play for us, but not that wasn't their only attribute, right? We tried to get back to some of the character that was necessary, the character we needed in order to compete the right way, guys that could rise to challenges, guys that could handle adversity, guys that were team-first guys. And we got all the way back to the basics. We got all the way back, and, and that's all we preached. Every day from the end of the 16 season until this year has been over, that's what we preached, getting back to the basics, reclaiming our identity, right? trying to figure out a way to get back to what we did to build the program to the heights that it got to. And it was really hard. 
Right? It was really hard. We still had some, some leftover guys from um, our tournament team of, of two years ago who were still a little resistant. We had a good group of young guys who were, who were, very, who were on the right track. Right? They, they, they understand it. You can challenge them. You can, um, you know, you, you can communicate with them. They want to have a relationship with the coaching staff, which makes it much easier to try and communicate some of the uncomfortable stuff that needs to be communicated if you're going to be a good team, a good business, a good whatever. All right. And so that's, that's a little bit of, of, of my, my leadership history. And, and I'll tell you what, um, the year we went to the NCAA tournament was, it's hard, right? Because you sit there and you say to yourself, hey, I'm, I'm a leader. I've got to do what's best for the group. Right? I've got to try and figure out what's best for the group. And so you start to adapt. You start to adapt. You start to morph yourself a little bit. And you start to sit there and you start to justify it. You, know, you start to do it. And then all of a sudden, by the time we got to the NCAA tournament, by the time we won the championship, you look at yourself and you go, like, I don't even know who really we are anymore. Right? We might as well just be a pickup team in the park that got together and was pretty talented and went on a good three-game run, and now we're going to the NCAA tournament, and everybody thinks we're this you know, happy-go-lucky, lucky, great family organization. And there's guys that, in all honesty, and I know this is being recorded, I should probably block this, there's guys that were on that team that you sit there and say, like, yo, I, I don't know if I even like respect you very much. And that's a hard thing to say from a leadership perspective because you're supposed to be helping guide and mentor those guys to get where they want to get. But sometimes they don't, ha- they don't want to work with you. So what do you do? What do you do? Right? What do you do? And do you, in, t- in, in, in certain situations, because you are trying to get the ultimate goal of going to the NCAA tournament, do you compromise certain things? And then at the end, like I said, the feeling's not the same. Right? Because you know it's not genuine. You know it's not what it needed to be. This year we won 14 games. Right? 14 and 19 we're back on the right track. Some, like I said, some of our guys, and, and the, the, the excitement and the energy and the joy when we won games this year was real. And I remember sitting with one of my assistant coaches this summer, and I said, what do you think? How do you think? What do you think about the new guys? What do you think about workouts? How do you think the summer's going? He said, I feel like every day when I go home, I'm not faking it. He's like, I feel like we're actually following the process again. We're following the steps again. We're putting in the proper work to win. We won seven out of our ten, uh, our seven out of our last ten this year. All right, our eventual champion. We lost to them in overtime. We were up one with a minute forty-five to go. Ended up losing the game in a really good game. Five of our top seven are freshmen and sophomores. So the future for us is bright, and I think we're back on the right track. But it's amazing how, when you go to the top. Right, and you get to the top. You, we won our league champion. We, we we were we were we were you know in the NCAA tournament. All those things, and you you I had even as a coach during that year, I had a crisis of confidence. Right, I really did. I would go and I would I would constantly be second guessing. What's my message? How can I go in the locker room and, and get these guys ready to play? How can I go to practice each day and get these guys to do the things that are necessary when they when they're looking through you or they're not buying into what you're doing. And it was a really, really um, daunting thing for me because up until that point, I never really thought about it, right? Even as a player or as a coach, right? I knew what the right thing to do was, or I thought I knew what the right thing to do was. I thought guys would buy into me as as a person, into what we were doing as a system because we had track record of success, but it didn't matter. And so it was a really great opportunity for me 
um, early in my career to be able to have that experience where I could grow and I could change. So uh, what I want to do is, is um, share with you what I learned. Okay, And I, and I have uh, five things, I guess, that, that, that we took, our staff took out of it, I took out of it personally, and I've tried to really, really, and I think there were things that I knew or things that I thought were important, but sometimes you need that reminder, and sometimes you need uh, to refresh your, your thought. Um, and, and this first one is, is, um, is, is something that I talk to myself about and I talk to our team about a lot, and especially the leaders on our team. Uh, and the biggest thing is, is, is leadership isn't perfection, right? And, and it's, it's amazing. Um, as the leader, you're going to make so many mistakes, and I, and I know I especially talk about this a lot with the guys on our team who are our team captains because they are so um, daunted by the or overwhelmed by what they feel like is they have to be perfect every day, right? That's their, that's their concept of leadership is I can never make a mistake. I can never miss a shot. I can never be wrong. I have to know every right answer. And so a lot of our guys, their answer to that is I don't want to be a leader. I don't want that pressure. I don't want that anxiety. I don't want to be the guy that the spotlight shines on because on Monday I yelled at you about practicing harder, and then on Tuesday I'm not sure I want to practice real hard. Okay? And so I tell them all the time, it's not perfection. You are not expected to be perfect. You're expected to help set the right example, set the tone. And as a leader, you're not expected to know everything, but can you help someone find the right answer? Right? You're a senior leader. You've been here for four years. A freshman comes to you and says, hey, how do I do this? I'm not really sure. Let's go ask coach. It's the response. Let's go ask coach. Let's go find someone that knows the answer. Right? Sometimes leadership is leading someone to the right answer. It doesn't mean you have to have it. And I say that to our guys in the meetings, especially early in the year when, when we kind of vote on our captains and stuff. And the guys kind of look at me, and it's like almost like a weight comes off their shoulder. You know, you're not expected to know every single thing that happens. And I remember my, my first year as a head coach, I had an assistant coach. Um, you know, I was 30 at that point in time. He was in his late 40s, and he had been a successful prep school coach for a number of years. And I, we, we were struggling a little bit early in the year, and I went to practice. In the beginning of practice, all I talked about were the mistakes that I made as a coach. And we had a great practice that day. And I remember going back to our office afterwards, and he came to my office. He said, I don't know if I would do that again. I said, what? Go in there and admit your mistakes. You're, you're supposed to be the head coach. Like he had this old school mentality of the head coach says what it is, and that's it, and you don't question it. And even if he tells you the absolutely wrong thing, that's not at all what you're ever supposed to admit because you're the head coach. And I said, you're crazy. And he's like, no, I wouldn't do that. I think the guys started looking around at each other and, you know, they were really, uh, you know, unsure how to take it and they might lose faith in you. I said, no, I think they'll have more faith in me. Because what do we say to them all the time? If you make a mistake, just own it, admit it, learn from it, move on, right? We don't, we don't need to dwell on it. We don't need to, you know, sit there and beat you up about it. They know I make mistakes. They're not, they're, they're, they're perceptive, they're observant. Uh, they're the first people to sniff out the fraud, right? They're, they're really good at that. And so we got to be honest with them. We want them, them to be honest with us. we got to set that example. And so that's, that's my next thing that I tell uh, our staff all the time is, is, is be the change you want to see, right? Come into my office and complain about so-and-so's 
being late or he's not on time or he's, you know, got a bad attitude or bad body language, be the change you want to be, right? Will him to do what you want him to do by showing him how to do it. He comes to practice, you don't like his body language, jack yours up three notches, right? He's late because he doesn't value everybody else's time or he thinks that his time is more important. Show him how to be on time. Go pick him up, right? And you can do it in a positive way. You can do it in a friendly way. Oh, man, I just happened to be coming by your dorm or I knew you were coming out of class. Yo, let's hustle over to the gym so we can get ready for practice so you can have a better practice. Be that change, right? All of us can sit here and complain about what's going on, but these are the guys we got, and we got to figure out how to get them to do what we need them to do, and we got to teach them how to do things the right way because they don't know, right? They don't know, right? They don't know. And so if we don't like the fact that a guy's showing up two minutes before, before practice and he keeps telling us every day, well, coach, I got class, and then I got to walk across campus, and I got to do this, why don't you go meet him outside his class and walk him across and say, hey, you made it here in uh, seven minutes, not 27 minutes. Why don't we try this? more frequently, right? And it's got to be repetitive. It's got to be all the time. And I think if you can go out and you can grab people like that, all of a sudden you have a chance to go in the right direction, right? So be that change that you want to see, right? And, and it's hard because you get beat down, right? The, the players or whoever you're trying to lead sometimes are pulling you in the opposite direction, and you've got to try and drag them in the direction that they don't even know they want to go, right? They don't even know they want to go, right? They just want to get to the end, but all the stuff in the middle is the hard part, and you've got to drag them through that part. And so myself and our staff, we try and be as hands-on as we can, as engaged as we can, as, um, uh, as in their lives as we can in, in, in a good way, right? Um, you know, I'll go after practice. If we have a bad practice or we have a, you know, or even before practice, I'll just go sit in a locker room, right? Because I want to dispel some of the, you know, if we have a bad practice and maybe I lost my mind and I said some mean things to people, you know, I, I want to go in the locker room and I don't want that to be, I don't want that to fester. I don't want them to talk about that. I don't want that to be the, the topic of conversation when they go into the locker room. And so I'll just go sit there. And it's a little bit uncomfortable at times, but like I'm throwing myself into their world and, and maybe the couple guys that had a good practice, I'll talk to them. Right, And I'll know the guys that, that don't want to see me because they don't want to make eye contact or they're staring at their phones or they're you know, moving on to their next thing quickly. Right? And so like trying to get a gauge on them, being involved in them as much as you can so we can promote the things that we want to see. Right? So that was the second one. Um, and then with that, I think, and this is kind of the third one, and, 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 and I, I say to our guys all the time, uh, to our staff, we got to look for the small wins. Right, we got to look for the small wins, right? And and those are the guys that that keep you coming back as a leader. Those are the guys that help motivate you as a leader because you see some of that growth. You see some of the uh, right decisions being made, right? You see that guy in a similar situation and he makes the right decision. That to you has got to be like winning a championship. Because looking for the small wins follows up with my next point, which is it's the most thankless job you'll ever have. So if you don't spend time looking for some of those small wins, you're going to feel beat down 95% of the time. Like no one ever pops in my office and says, you know, none of my players do. Uh, occasionally my athletic director will. Hey, what's going on, man? Everything good? How are you feeling? They don't care. Right? They, don't, they don't care. Hey, tough practice today. Everything good with you? No, you don't care. Right? You, you could care less, right? So it's completely thankless. Right? Ten years out now, right? I've been at Robert Morris ten years. Now you're starting to see some of, you know, a, a text message from a former player or an email from a former player saying that they start to figure it out and get it. And you've got to grab onto those things like you just, you know, made it to the Final Four. 
Because those are the things that have to keep you going as a leader. If not, you'll sink. You'll sink, right? And I, and I don't know everybody else's worlds or where they live, but in my world with 18 to 22-year-olds, right, they're trying to pull you down, right? They're, they're, their whole, they get up in the morning sometimes, and I feel like their whole desire is to try and do the exact opposite of everything that you want them to do. <laughs> so if you don't grab onto those wins, it's going to be a long day. It's going to be a long day, right? And so that's what I keep telling our staff. You know, keep motivating yourself with some of those small wins. Uh, and, and one of the things that we do, and, and, and everybody does stuff like this, but we, we send out a thought of the day to our, to our team each and every day. Um, and the funny thing is, is I pick it every day. And 95% of the time, it's for me more than them. Like, I think they'll benefit from it, but I'm the one that needs it more than they do. I spend my time now as a leader watching more motivational stuff to get myself going and get myself into the right frame of mind each and every day so that I can project it to them, right? It's crazy. Uh, it's crazy. So the small wins, uh, not perfection. It's thankless. It's exhausting, right? My, my, probably my first true time that I, that I understood how uh, exhausting leadership was was my, my junior year of college, um, I was on a very good team as a player. I had sat out the previous year, and I was, I was basically our team captain before ever playing a game at Penn. And we had a great non-conference portion of our schedule, and then all of a sudden we got into our league play in the Ivy League, and we struggled. We were one in three in our league. And um, we ended up coming back, made a, made a great turnaround, won, won our league. And I remember sitting as a player with my head coach afterwards, and I said, like, I'm completely exhausted. Because the end of that year took so much effort from, or I thought from me, to try to get everybody where they needed to be each and every day and bring the right energy and be consistent in how, in how I approach practice and be positive in the fact that even though we were one in three, that, hey, we still have faith that we can turn this thing around and we can win a championship. And we did, and by the end, I was, like, spent. Then I became an assistant coach and realized how exhausting that was. Then I became a head coach and realized how even more exhausting that is, Right? Um, and, and so it's completely exhausting. And then my last thing that I came to, uh, and I thought of this one on the bus, on our, on our bus. Our guys love the Batman trilogy uh, with Christian Bale, right? That's him, Christian Bale. And everybody talks about servant leadership. And everybody talks about trying to be there for everybody. And that's, that's what we try to do. But I think it, there's a little twist on it. I think it's like servant leadership with a little bit of an edge to it, right? And I think of Alfred the butler. And I think of him because he's always in the background. He's always observing what's going on. He's always making sure that, that Christian Bale has what he needs. But then when he needs the kick in the butt or he needs the truth to be told or he needs that right lesson to be imparted upon him, he's there to give it. And I really think that that's a great model uh, for leadership because that's what we are, right? Um, we can't suffocate everything. Right? And, I, and I've done that before. I've tried to suffocate stuff. And you've got to be able to guide. You've got to be able to, to make sure that everybody's comfortable and have what they need. But then when you've got to interject and you've got to give the right message that's going to be able to win the day, win the game, win the week, win the month, win the season, you've got to be able to do it. Right? And all those movies turn around when Christian Bale's feeling sorry for himself and Alfred tells him you know, to get his SHIT together and all of a sudden he goes out and starts, you know, Kicking butt. And so I, I think it's, um, 
and again, we watch movies on the bus. That's where, that's where I came up with that. But um, that's, that's kind of how I would like to be viewed as a leader. And I hope that that makes, makes sense to you guys um, because it, it, it is, um, I think, one of the most valuable ways to lead. I, I was sitting with um, a guy earlier this year and, and, uh, from Pittsburgh, and he does some hiring and some, you know, and, and I, I've tried to talk to some business people. I've talked to Russell about it on occasions about, you know, how do you hire? Because I think recruiting in some ways is, is like hiring, right? And, and even though uh, our players aren't considered employees by the NCAA, um, in some ways, it's kind of what their role is, right? That's kind of the dynamic that takes shape. And he asked me all about our day-to-day, and he asked me all about this different stuff, and, and he said to me, it sounds like you're doing way too much of the heavy lifting, and so maybe you've got to step back. And that's where that, that servant service with an edge kind of came in because he was right, right? I was always interjecting my thoughts and my feelings and my answers and my solutions to problems and weren't allowing maybe some other people to figure out what would be best for them. Um, and so that's, that's kind of been my course. Uh, and, and like I said, we are, uh, I think, on the upswing, right? Um, we have guys that get it. We met with our guys last week about the upcoming season, the things that we need to do in the offseason in order to be better next year. Um, we're, we're usually pretty detailed with how we plan out their offseasons and, and the requirements that they have and the things that we need them to improve on and um, you know, try and hold them to those standards. Um, but like I said, I, 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 I've gone from you know, doing no wrong to can't do anything right and trying to get back to somewhere in the middle because right? I don't think either of them are true. Right? I don't think either of them are, are accurate descriptions of any leader. Right? Can't do anything wrong, can't do anything right. I think somewhere in the middle is where you lie, and we're trying to get back to that at, at Robert Morris University. So um, that's my story. That's, that's my leadership story. That's my thoughts. That's um, you know a, a, a lot of stuff. But um, as much as it's thankless, as much as it's exhausting, as much as... Um, all those things, th- there's nothing better than it, right? There's nothing better than it, um, especially when you get some of those small wins or for us, you know, our four seniors will graduate this, this May and, um, you know, one of them who, you know, never thought you'd get to that graduation day and, you know, some of that personal growth and development is, is, is part of it as well. But um, that's kind of my story. So, Doug, if you want to, you know, open it up for some questions and answers. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Andy talk. You can find ways to connect with him at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 140. Again, if you really enjoyed the talk, you can go uh, to episode number 141 and listen to our Q&A session with him. You could also go to episode 114 and listen to my one-on-one interview with him. A few announcements to wrap up. We recently introduced L3 membership. That's right, for just $25 a month, you can become a member of L3 leadership. Some of the benefits are that you'll get into all of our breakfast events for free. You'll get a free L3 leadership t-shirt. You'll have access to joining one of our mastermind groups and access to our member-only site that's filled with extra content, resources, and courses to help your leadership go to the next level. For more information, go to l3leadership.org forward slash membership. 
I want to thank our other sponsor, Bab Inc., who hosts our monthly leadership breakfast. We're so grateful for them. They are an insurance broker, third-party administrator, and consulting firm all across the country, and they do some really cool things. But what we love about them is they really are passionate about developing next-generation leaders. So if your company has any insurance needs and wants to check them out, go to babbins.com. That's B-A-B-B-I-N-S.com. If you'd like to stay in touch with us and everything that we're doing here at L3 Leadership, just go to our website, l3leadership.org, and sign up for our email list, and you'll get a free copy of my ebook, Making the Most of Mentoring, and you'll start to receive weekly emails with everything you need to know about L3. And as always, if this podcast added value to your life, we would really appreciate it if you would hop on iTunes, subscribe, and leave a rating and review. It really does help us. Thank you so much for that. And I always like to close with a quote, and I love this one. This has been a longtime favorite. Uh, the quote goes, this, it says, hell begins on that day when God grants us a clear vision of all that we may have achieved, all the gifts we wasted, and of all that we may have done and did not do. That'll get you going. Thanks for listening and being a part of L3 Leadership. Laura and I appreciate you, and we'll talk to you next episode. 